This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Anizar Can. Today, I'm joined by Apostolos Andriukopoulos, a Marie Curie Global Fellow at Harvard University and at the University of Amsterdam. We will be talking about his book, Argonauts of West Africa, Unauthorized Migration and Kinship Dynamics in a Changing Europe, published recently by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much, Apostolos, for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. The honor is all mine. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to anthropology and how did you arrive at this book project? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Well, let me start with uh, with a book topic. Uh, the book examines uh, how West African uh, migrants uh, navigate uh, through increasingly hostile immigration uh, policies in Europe uh, by generating um, new forms of kinship, by generating um, new forms of sociality. Um, For example, in uh, the Netherlands, where I have conducted uh, ethnographic fieldwork, unauthorized migrants can find uh, jobs, uh, registered jobs, uh, tax-paying jobs, um, under someone else's name, uh, using the identity document of of that person, with whom they develop a relationship that they they both uh, describe in terms of uh, uh, in kinship terms, so usually brotherhood, uh, brotherhood or uh, uh, or sisterhood. So basically, the book is about kinship uh, and about how uh, how migrants turn to kinship uh, in search of uh, solutions to problems that uh, uh, that relate to their legal status. Uh, I have to say that uh, 
Initially, I was a bit, uh, I was a bit reluctant to to study kinship. Uh, I would even say that um, I found uh, kinship a little bit boring. Uh, I had different ideas about kinship. What what I knew as as an undergrad was uh, uh, that kinship um, kind of like represented an era in anthropology that you know, like maybe. Yeah, we're not very proud of or oh that kinship was uh, uh, yeah was um, was theorized particularly in the British uh, stru- structural functionalist school um, as an ascribed relation as um, as something static uh, as an institution of the so-called uh, traditional society of stateless societies um, without or societies without strong state organization where when the state comes kind of like emancipates uh, people from the reliance uh, on kinship um, but actually like my even from my early observations uh, what I could see was exactly the opposite um, that uh, kinship was uh, kinship was relevant was becoming important for West African migrants not in the absence of the state but due to the presence of the state violence uh, of the state um, so this uh, this made me realize the the relevance of uh, and the urgency of of studying this topic but also at the same time uh, the need for uh, for a different approach to kinship an approach to kinship that uh, that consider its uh, its plasticity and its flexibility and also in its entanglements with uh, uh, with state politics and in that regard i found uh, um, very useful and I drew inspiration from recent uh, conceptualizations of kinship, usually called uh, new kinship studies, that are attentive to uh, to these caveats. Um, now, ab- about the book project, I mean, I guess that as every project is is to a certain extent uh, interrelated with the with the trajectory of uh, of the author. And, and that's also uh, my case. Um, I was born and raised in, in Greece. I was educated in Greece. I studied in Greece. Um, and uh, like the first time that, um, that I worked with, the, with West African migrants was in the context of my first ethnographic fieldwork in uh, in a greek city in thessaloniki uh, where um, where i was working together with a small number of uh, west african migrants nigerians um, a few years later i moved to to amsterdam to to continue my studies that should be around 2009 and uh, it was a time um, it was the onset of like the global financial crisis, which has uh, uh, severe consequences for Greece. Greece has has gone through its own 
sovereign debt uh, crisis with horrible consequences for uh, for Greece and uh, and its residents, uh, with uh, you know bailout loans from the European Union, uh, the IMF, um, under the condition of austerity measures that actually only uh, only accelerated uh, the problems. Uh, and it was at that time that, uh, uh, for example, I remember that the unemployment rate for uh, for people in of my age had exceeded sixty uh, percent. So it was, and in that context, it was kind of uh, of obvious that I wouldn't return to Greece, that I would remain uh, in the Netherlands, as I did, uh, and I started working. In uh, uh, I started like doing menial jobs. Uh, first, I I worked as uh, as a cleaner, as uh, as a housekeeper uh, in a hotel where all my colleagues uh, were migrants, and uh, like we were paid like with uh, about half of the of the legal minimum. And then I worked in a very large uh, in the kitchen of a very large uh, fast food restaurant. Uh, and there, specifically in that uh, uh, in that fast food restaurant, um, I came across. Uh, I met again uh, African migrants that I had first met in Greece in the context of my first fieldwork. So our relationship changed from, you know, in the in the Greek context, the relations between researcher and research participants to a relation between. Uh, two colleagues, um, and I was very happy to see them, and they introduced me to uh, to the networks that they had established uh, in the Netherlands. Some of them had even been married to uh, to Greek women, um, and that I I came to I came to learn more about all these very fascinating ways uh, of how how West African migrants work with kinship. And a few years later, uh, when I was uh, admitted in the PhD program of uh, the University of, uh, of Amsterdam, I started, uh, actually I started doing research on that particular topic. And I even decided to keep my job at the fast food restaurant part-time. Uh, I started working there part-time, not anymore for survival reasons, but as a uh, uh, as a kind of uh, as a kind of field work, uh, of course, like my uh, my colleagues were aware what I was doing there. I was not secretive uh, about this, and in fact, they were uh, they were extremely supportive. Um, and when I look back, I realize that uh, my project, my my ethnographic project, wouldn't have been successful um, without this kind of support and without um, actually without having developed this kind of relation with some of my uh, key interlocutors a relation that that transformed that changed throughout time and it lasted also um, throughout time yeah, absolutely. And that really comes across in the book. And in fact, 
Something I really appreciated in the book was your careful attention to your collaborators' stories. You really take that as your lens to rethink some of the oft-used terms in migration studies. For example, I have in mind Jason, with whom you arrive at the term unauthorized identity craft. How did Jason, alongside others you met along the way, lead you to a shift from identity fraud to unauthorized identity craft? Yes, indeed. Um, like throughout uh, my book, um, I very uh, consciously, uh, and I hope also uh, consistently, uh, avoid using uh, state categories uh, as analytic categories. Um, and that is not uh, that is not always the case, especially in uh, in studies of migration, uh, where researcher can uh, can adopt like state categories as uh, as their lens to uh, to to explore like a social issue. Uh, and I think that this. Uh, this bears particular uh, risks because when you um, when you approach a topic through the lens of the state, then you end up saying like the state. Um, that means that your attention is directed to to certain issues that the state considers important that you disregard other issues that for the state is not important and then you end you end up uh, like producing and reproducing um, a state-centered epistemology with all its consequences with like reproducing state-centered hierarchies forms of exclusion and so on um, so in in my book I tried to uh, to treat these categories as uh, uh, as categories of of actors in uh, the social worlds that I study, and I try also to uh, to foreground, to prioritize um, the experiences and practices uh, practices of migrants. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the the example of uh, of Jason. Uh, for me, like the story of Jason and my interaction with uh, with Jason was really key to was really very important to make me realize um, that uh, what are the problems when, for example, you uh, you do not problematize what it means identity fraud. Uh, so, for those who have not read the book, Jason is uh, is a Ghanaian migrant with a very spectacular uh, journey throughout the world in his attempt to uh, to migrate to Europe. He has traveled through uh, through many African and Asian countries. He managed to, um, uh, to enter Europe. Um, then he was he was arrested and deported uh, deported in Ghana. And during this um, this spectacular journey, uh, he used, if I remember well, 10, uh, 10 different identity documents, eight different names, six different uh, nationalities, and so on. Um, 
I met Jason in the early stage of my fieldwork in Ghana, where I had a series of interviews uh, with him. And in one of in one of our first interviews, uh, he was narrating one particular experience he had, he had in Malaysia uh, at the airport of Kuala Lumpur. So he was telling me that uh, that he had booked a ticket from Malaysia to Canada uh, using a Zimbabwean passport with a different Zimbabwean name. So he arrived at the airport. He handed in his passport at the counter and the airline agent refused to, uh, um, uh, to process his booking, refused to, to board him. Um, and you know, as, as he was narrating this, this experience, I asked him why he thought that the agent uh, refused him to uh, to process the booking. And, you know, it is like one of these questions that we ask and we think that we know the answer. You know, like, I was really expecting, you know, something like, well, you know, when you uh, engage in identity fraud, this kind of things are likely to happen. I was expecting a reaction like that. Uh, instead, like his reaction was it was quite surprising to me because he said, uh, he said, my brother, I do not know. Like he, he acted surprised that, you know, uh, this happened. And then that was really the moment that I said to myself that actually this, this tells something about your bias, my biases, uh, that it tells something about uh, that, that I have that I have embraced uh, state's frame of understanding. That I need to understand the situation through his own eyes if I want to to grasp uh, to grasp the situation. Uh, and indeed, like it's uh, like learning more about him and about his story and his uh, and his trajectory. Um, I came to realize that indeed that was that was a surprise because the one and only time in his life that Jason traveled with his own Ghanaian passport that was when he traveled from Ghana to to Zimbabwe uh, the the Zimbabwean uh, uh, officer at the airport doubted that this passport belonged to him and he and he refused to to grant him entry, uh, and um, uh, it was like a brand new passport. Uh, there was like no uh, no other stamps in it. West Africans call this passport uh, virgin passports. Uh, so Jason had to bribe this officer in order to grant him an entry and then let him. Uh, let him enter Zimbabwe. And uh, in contrast, like with that particular Zimbabwean passport uh, that uh, he made the reservation for, uh, for Canada, he had used it to travel from South Africa to Malaysia. And from Malaysia, he had traveled two times to Thailand with that passport. Um, 
So, you know, the, the thing here is that um, when you you try to interpret a situation like this through the lens of identity fraud, then your attention is directed to to certain issues that for uh, for the state are relevant. Namely, first, uh, where the documents are produced. So whether the documents are produced by a state authority or uh, by someone else, like for example, a broker. Uh, or second, um, whether the person who, who carries the document is assessed by state authorities as the legitimate holder of the document. Uh, while for migrants, yeah, these, these distinctions are relevant also for migrants. It's not that they disregard them, but they are subsumed under their more general concern whether identity documents or whether documents are effective. And what makes a document effective, that means what enables them to cross borders, to get registered jobs, to allow them to stay um, uh, in a certain country. So what makes them effective is something quite different than what may, how the state assess the authenticity uh, of a document. And that's why I, uh, I came up like with that uh, with that term, unauthorized identity craft, uh, which is also a, a notion that I elaborate further with um, uh, with my colleague Joan Kim from my, uh, from the University of Michigan. And with that notion, uh, this no like this notion refers to the process of migrants crafting. Uh, different relations, intersecting relations uh, with other persons, with objects, with institutions uh, in order to get access to documents and establish a relation uh, with the document that um, uh, that a migration control agent would assess as, as genuine. Yeah, that's incredible, Apostolos. Thanks so much for also, you know, being so... Um, story-led and led by Jason in this very rich response. I really appreciate that. And now if Jason made you reconsider how you were taking state-centered lenses, your book made me consider how I was dismissive of marriage and kinship, <laughs> especially in understanding migration. And in my next question, I kind of want you to um, take us through that. So Particularly, you show us in the book that marriage is important in these kinds of mobilities and moments, but it remains a complicated relationship as well. Uh, I was particularly struck by your discussion of the possibilities and limits of transatlantic kinship between West African migrants and Afro-Caribbean Dutch citizens. So can you speak more to um, these links between marriage, transatlantic kinship and black lives in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly. Um, I think like talking about black lives, it is, it is really very broad to talk about uh, black lives in Europe, not even in the Netherlands, because it's not really, it's not a homogeneous, uh, it is not a homogeneous group. Uh, like when it comes like to the Netherlands and to the experiences of uh, African migrants and uh, 
Afro-Caribbean Dutch citizens, Dutch citizens of uh, Afro-Caribbean origin. I mean, these two groups are certainly subjected to certain forms, to, to, to certain manifestations of, uh, uh, of anti-black racism. But also their experiences are um, uh, can be rather different, uh, depending also on um, you know on the different intersections with other axes of uh, of difference. Uh, and you, you know you can mention really a lot here. But in my book, like I particularly focus on uh, intersections with. Uh, with citizenship status and like with civic, uh, yeah, with with civic inequality, uh, because you know, like uh, African West African migrants, um, many of them like have a, a precarious legal status. Uh, a significant number of them are even unauthorized, so that means that they do not have the right to. Uh, to reside in in the Netherlands, while uh, Afro Caribbeans are um, mostly uh, Dutch citizens. They originate from former Dutch colonies, from uh, from Suriname, and from uh, uh, from Dutch Caribbean islands, uh, and most of them are uh, are Dutch citizens. So, in terms of citizen cit- uh, citizenship status, there is an inequality. Um, which, well, paradoxically, for for some observers, it is also what what to 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 some extent brought them closer, because when uh, um, uh, when uh, uh, West African migrants um, started migrating to the Netherlands, uh, well, started migrating in more noticeable numbers, I would say, which is. Uh, since the mid-80s and in the 90s, so that in that early period, uh, we, you know, they were lacking civic resources and, um, and uh, Afro-Caribbeans were having civic resources. So it was, uh, many of them, uh, well, me- a, a quite good number of them managed to uh, uh, to get uh, to get legalized or to get indefinite residence permits and, and citizenship through uh, through marriage with uh, uh, with that citizens of uh, Afro Caribbean uh, Afro Caribbean origin. But you know, at the same time, I really do not want to overemphasize their difference in terms of uh, uh, in terms of citizenship status because things are also uh, changing so now i see that uh, uh, the newer generation of uh, like the children of of african migrants who have been born in the netherlands who are dutch citizens uh, i see that they increasing like they have quite similar uh, experiences with uh, uh, with Dutch citizens of Afro-Caribbean uh, origin, um, and I see also that uh, this this also bring them closer, and um, yeah, I see that also in 
with my students that um, you know like they develop like different forms of uh, of solidarity and uh, and collaboration yeah thanks so much for you know both showing us these possibilities of solidarity but also showing us how they can be complex and to me another you know really amazing work that the book does is showing the complexity in europeanness you know who's a european or what europe signifies uh, and especially in the parts of the book when you follow the relationships between african migrant men and women from the margins of europe we see how they navigate life in amsterdam so i'm curious about what we can glean about belonging and europeanness by paying careful attention to these relationships and taking Amsterdam as a lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, in the book, actually, I, expl I explore, I examine how uh, West African migrants uh, navigate through, uh, through emerging obstacles and as the title indicates, in a changing Europe. Uh, so um, this is a, a situation that constantly change, changes. Um, new barriers emerge, and I would say that mostly there are uh, negative changes for migrants, so like changes that, may, that make their lives more difficult, more challenging. Uh, but also there are changes with, uh, with contradictory effects uh, or changes with unanticipated effects. So let me give you an example of, uh, you know, I think it is quite relevant, the, yeah, well, perhaps it's, it's surprisingly relevant, the expansion of the European Union eastwards in, uh, I think that was, that was like in 2000, 2004. So uh, a number of uh, Eastern European countries, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, um, Slovakia, the Baltic countries and so on, like joined uh, the European Union and they became uh, like full EU uh, member states, which also meant that uh, their citizens as European citizens could move and settle in any other uh, European country. Um, so this meant that uh, many, uh, many citizens from these European countries uh, relocated to the Netherlands uh, or, or they were already in the Netherlands, but then they, um, they obtained rights to work and leave there as full citizens. Uh, and this has an effect in the employment of particularly of unauthorized West African migrants because to a certain extent, um, to a certain extent they were displaced from the labor market. So the arrival of, um, uh, of Europeans from, uh, from of peripheral Europeans, either from uh, uh, Eastern Europe or also from Southern Europe, particularly after uh, 
uh, after the economic hurdles of recent years, specifically here, I refer to Greece, but not only, I mean, also in Spain, Portugal, Italy. Um, so these Europeans, these European migrants who arrived in the Netherlands, uh, they were also, you know, they were newcomers. They were easily, uh, easily exploitable for employers, but at the same time, they were European citizens. That means that they were not putting their, uh, their employers at risk of being fined for, uh, for employing, um, unauthorized workers. So, you know, on the one hand, this meant that it displaced, uh, uh unauthorized West African migrants from the, the from the labor market to, to some extent, but then at the same time, it presented a new opportunity, uh, a new opportunity for their legalization for obtaining long-term residence permits, as many of them uh, got married with these newly arrived uh, migrants and um, and regularized their status through that way. And in fact, um, do you, I mean, I, I'm not going now to enter into uh, legal details because it's it can be like truly complicated, but let me say briefly that uh, that it is much easier for an unauthorized migrant to get legalized through marriage with a European citizen, non-Dutch European citizen in the Netherlands, rather than with a Dutch citizen in the Netherlands. The process is, is faster, there are less requirements, um, yeah, or like very mild requirements actually. Um, and as you can as you can imagine, like uh, Dutch authorities have been quite suspicious uh, when they started noticing that uh, unauthorized West African migrants started getting married, started getting um, yeah, started getting married with uh, um, with migrants from uh, from Europe's periphery. Uh, they suspected that these were um, the so-called sham marriages, you know, another like uh, policy state category that I'm, I'm quite critical in uh, in my book, and they started like investigating the motives of the, of these African migrants, particularly men, uh, to get married with these uh, European citizens, European women, uh, and what I do in my book is that I, uh, I'm trying to focus on all these different forms of exchange that take place within this, uh, within these marriages. Um, and what I came to realize is that particularly, um, migrant men, uh, are very much concerned about the possibility of being legalized through marriage. They know that if they are legalized uh, through marriage, they will be reliant on on their wives, uh, a condition that very often is seen as um, uh, as compromising their masculinity, 
to be like against the ideals that they have about about marriage. Um, so actually, their marriages with migrants from Europe's periphery. So these are migrants who, on the one hand, are uh, EU citizens, so they have like the necessary civic resources, but they are also in a different structural position in that society. They're not Dutch citizens. They're not like established and well-connected as uh, Dutch residents are. Um, so with them, they can also... Um, uh, they can also offer them the, the resources that they can offer them can be uh, can be better appreciated. So in that way, uh, they can establish a more let's say a reciprocal dependency. So it is a way to navigate inequality uh, in marriage. So uh, for example, like helping your uh, your Greek wife or your Polish wife to find a job through your networks as as a cleaner in Amsterdam. Uh, that will be, well, I mean, I don't want like now to to overgeneralize, but uh, I, I would say that this would be more appreciated from a person who has just arrived in, in Amsterdam and like tries to, to, to establish herself and, you know, and settle rather than from... Perhaps like a white Dutch woman who was born there, who is already well connected, uh, etc. Um, so, I mean, but looking at this European Afro-European marriages, um, we can observe a quite, perhaps a contradictory trend. On the one hand, we see like um, we see like uh, an inclusive and liberal European citizenship, um, like Europe that tries to um, to protect the family rights of uh, of its citizens, and at the same time we see an unequally divided Europe because these um, uh, these European migrants become preferable partners that they they yeah they become. Uh, they are wanted as a partners precisely because they are coming from from Europe's periphery. So I think that this reflects uh, current dynamics in Europe that uh, uh, that they can go like in in both ways, in intricate ways. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in the book, as you delve into that intricacy. You know, it comes across that you also develop quite a bit of intimacy with your collaborators as well. So you mentioned, you know, the long stretches of time through which you built these relationships, but you also built very deep ones where people shared with you details about their relationships and sex lives. So I'm curious about the role of intimacy in your fieldwork and maybe its limits or its dark side to borrow from you. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, I like that you ask this question and about uh, uh, about the problems of intimacy, uh, because I see also that there is uh, a general tendency that you know, like when you establish like trust and 
with your research participants that that this is uh, that this is something good. That certainly it is good, uh, but I also find quite simplistic, um, like to to think that uh, trust is something that uh, that you establish when one it is like a one time achievement. And then, like trust is there. For me, it is actually it is more difficult. It, it seems to me more difficult to maintain trust than to uh, than to establish it. And um, yeah, I mean that when you establish like a close relationship with uh, with a with a research participant with with an interlocutor. This means also that multiple forms of exchange take take place, uh, and these forms of exchange uh, always carry a possibility of strengthening your relationship if the exchange is successful, uh, or also um, damaging the relationship. Um, and I felt that particularly with. Uh, you know, like when when like your research participants come with completely um, unrealistic uh, requests, how do you handle this? How do you say no? How 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 do you say I cannot do this? Um, yeah. So, uh, but but I see your point. You know, like um, what we do. Uh, Ethnography requires uh, requires intimacy. Like you, if you want to, uh, if you want to to gain like some ethnographic depth that would allow you to um, to destabilize certain categories, to see like the messiness of life, to see like uh, uh, seeming contradictions, things that do not make sense to our outsider. You need to, you need to, you need to invest in a relationship, uh, and yeah, that that requires time and and effort. And as I mentioned previously, I don't think that I would be able to to establish this type of uh, relationship with my research participants if I didn't know them for so many years, and if the way that I related to them. Um, Sifted through different frames, like from researcher participant to colleagues at work to friends, you know, all this different uh, different frames. Yeah. Well, speaking of the passage of time and things changing, my last question for you is: What is next for you? What comes after this book? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, uh, currently I'm working on our. Uh, uh, on a new project um, on uh, mobility through uh, through same-sex relationships, through same-sex partnerships, uh, the legal recognition of uh, same-sex couples in an increasing number of, of countries from Europe, uh, certain European countries, South Africa, North America, and so on. Like the this uh, countries that are like um, popular destinations among migrants uh, in West Africa and not only. 
uh, opens up also uh, a possibility for migration through the formal uh, family reunification channel, which is now also available to same-sex couples. Um, but what I'm more interested in in, uh, in this current project is how uh, resources acquired through mobility and through this particular type of mobility are channeled through the networks of, uh, of my research participants and how the circulation of these resources within their networks craft uh, the conditions of their acceptance in, uh, uh, within their families, within their kinship networks. Well, I'm certainly glad you'll be keeping us on our toes to, uh, you know, keep kinship in mind in anthropology. This sounds fascinating and hopefully we'll have you back at the podcast when that book is out. But for now, thank you very much, Apostolos, for joining us and for your insights. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Argonauts of West Africa, Unauthorized Migration and Kinship Dynamics in a Changing Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.